Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masech Psachim, daf Tzadi Bet, page 92. We're coming to the very end of our parak, parak Shemini, the eighth parak, and it kind of follows some of what we've just been discussing, both in terms of we've got a new Mishnah, and then, um, which of course begins on the previous daf, and then closing Gemara on this parak. We're actually, we debated whether we're going to go into the new parak um, because, you know, it's kind of nice to start a new parak on a new day. But this new parak really starts towards the top of Amud Bet. So stay tuned and we'll get there momentarily. The Mishnah, this last Mishnah that, that really begins on the previous stuff but continues on to our stuff, begins as follows. Onin tovel v'ochel et pischo la'erev. So we've got somebody who's in Onin, which of course follows on the Mishnah, the heels of the Mishnah of the previous stuff, where we again, or we were already talking about an Onin, somebody who is in the period of mourning immediately following news of, receiving news of somebody's, a close relative's death, um, and but prior to burial. And that person, that Onin, is prohibited from eating from the sacrificial food, right? From from the kajim, um, because of this status of being a no name. So the question that is, you know, is it just the day? Is it included to the night? The, there's a decree from the rabbanan that it seems to include the night, as opposed to just being the day, which is the Torah restriction. But the but the point here is of our mission is that despite all of that. The Onain is still He will still dunk, right? After, you know, in order to purify and then eat the Korban Pesach that evening. But he can't eat other kachim. It's only about the Korban Pesach, which should not surprise us because we've seen so many exceptions to the general rules about Korbanot and how they're handled by the general population. Um, you know, that this stands to reason. Right, that's, there's the rest of the the text in the Mishnah. Somebody who hears about the death, you know, again, a close relative of a death, but where you hear about it, this is the case of somebody who discovers this news more than 30 days after the death. Now, this would never, ever, ever, please God, never happen in this day and age because we have such a thing as rapid fire communication. And people get word to people much, much faster than more than 30 days. But you can imagine prior to, forget about email or WhatsApp or whatever, think about even before um, telephones, right? Before telegraphed, the idea of having to get word to somebody that somebody, that a close relative has died, anybody who's gone traveling, you know, it will take some time till that gets back to, to the home front. So it was you know, maybe too common that one might hear about one's immediate relatives dying more than 30 days after the death itself. And then that person enters into a status of onain, of aninut, but it's a rabbinic aninut, not a doraita aninut, because it's too, it's too late. I mean, that sounds awful, but it's after the 30 days, after the immediate period of shloshim. So the idea is that the from the time of you hear of it, you're still going to be in, you know, that crushing uh, mourning period, but from a halachic perspective, uh, it's a it's of a different status. So that person will then he will gather. It's, the expression is to gather the bones, right? Meaning that they would, if the, specifically if his parents, if they're buried in a temporary location, 
for for a certain amount of time and then they would move them to a permanent burial place. This also speaks to the practices of burial that are no longer ours. Uh, then, right, that same person who's doing that, who is gathering the bones and to move them to another place will um, have an acute day of mourning, meaning, again, this period of Aninut. And then all of those people, the mourners, will go and tovel, they'll immerse, and they will eat, you know, the Korban Pesach of the night, but they can also eat the other Kodshim, because this period of mourning, as intense as it is, is still lesser than the, the basic case of an Onin. So Chazal themselves did not extend uh, that rabbinic aninut uh, into the evening. Then the, the Mishnah here continues, and it, it takes a twist, I would say. If you have a convert whose conversion goes into effect, right? The process of conversion is completed on Erev Pesach. And I have to say, practically speaking, Yardena, I don't understand where there was time to do this. But I imagine that a ger, who, you know, somebody who's about to become a ger, might be very eager to get in. You know, on the mitzvot of the on the uh, mitzvot of the Pesach, and therefore, you know, even though there's no no time, perhaps that would be uh, you know, driven to make sure it happens. Beit Shammai says that yes, this person would dunk and eat the korban Pesach in the evening, and Beit Hillel omrim a poresh min haorlak a poresh min hakever. Beit Hillel, and this is an interesting thing. Beit it's how do we see which is more machmir and which is more mekil? Beit Hillel says that somebody who separates from being an Arel, somebody who separates from having that status of being an uncircumcised one, meaning in this case a non-Jew, that's the point of that, is leaving a ritual impurity as if one separated from the grave, having come in contact with a dead body. So the, the idea is, according to Beit Hillel, that person must have seven days of purification right before being able to dunk, not just that night, not from the period, not from the process of conversion. So, and only then, meaning day eight and onward, would that person partake of Kodshim. I find it interesting that the my intuitive read of this, I suppose, is that Beit Hillel is more machmir, right? Because the concern is, don't let that person eat from the Korban Pesach too soon. You could also say that Beit Shammai is being more machmir to say, oh my goodness, get in for the Korban Pesach. That's your obligation. You're now a Jew. Yeah, I wonder if this machlokas is really here less to tell us about the Korban Pesach, but more to tell us about this, you know, that the person who has a, you know, circumcision, I'm assuming this is as an adult, you know, it's like because it's interesting, we obviously don't treat babies this way. So that distinction with an older adult is, you know, is interesting. Like, why is that not consistent over time when anybody has, I mean, maybe it's that we just don't pass in like base Hillel, but we don't see that even as an issue with the baby for base Hillel. That's an interesting question. I do think that conversion is different, meaning the idea that somebody has lived a, an adult, you know, a life past bar mitzvah age, right? At the very least, you know, the age of majority, even if not necessarily an adult in, you know, in that status of a non-Jew is really different than the than the person who doesn't have an obligation. Well, I guess a non-Jew doesn't have an obligation in Brit Mila either. All right. This bears further thinking. It, it just bears further thinking. And again, I wonder if it's more about that machlokas than that actual halacha, because I understand what you're saying. Like, who would really plan their circumcision for that day? Why would you just do it the day before? Um, but I'll just read a little bit more about that machlokas here. I'm a rabbi barachana. I'm a rabbi yochanan. Machloka barale nachri. So really, they, rabbi barachana comes and says, in the name of rabbi yochanan, this machlokas is, 
you know, about uh, uncircumcised, uh, uh, you know, non-Jews. That in other words, uh, this is not going to be about um, uh, a Jew who, who for some reason wasn't circumcised and then decided to get circumcised. And they give an interesting reason here. Debate Hillel Savri Gizera Shama Yitame Lashana Yomer. Right. So Beit Hillel holds that there is a decree basically put on for him not allowing him to eat the Korban Pesach because in the coming year, let's say he actually becomes Tumat mate, right? He becomes Tame because he handles a corpse. And he says, um, Last year, what did I do? I just simply went to the mikvah and I immersed and, you know, and then I was able to eat the Korban Pesach. So today also, this is what I'll do. I'll do the same thing. And he didn't realize that in the previous year, right, that it was basically that he was a non-Jew and he couldn't actually become Tame from me. In other words, it, there may be a confusion here surrounding what actually happens, right? And not really understanding the full halacha. But whereas if you're Israel and you're Makabel Tuma, right? So in other words, you know, and you know, therefore, that, um, uh, you know, that you, so sorry, so now he would be a Yisrael who would eat as as somebody who's tummy because he didn't really actually finish the seven days that he needed to finish. But Bechamai holds that we don't actually, there was no such decree put in place about a real Yisrael, but with a uncircumcised Jew, right, who wants to have, who does a circumcision on Arab Pesach, Everybody agrees, both Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, he, this person just goes to the mikvah and then can eat it, uh, eat the korban pesach. And we wouldn't make the same decree for an uncircumcised Jew as we would for an uncircumcised non-Jew who is converting. Um, and so it's interesting here, this seems to be a little bit of a consistent theme uh, we see this also previously on the other dot that we sort of sometimes do treat, you know, converts or people who are sort of new to the religion a little differently because there is sort of a concern that since maybe they were not wholly immersed in halakha, you know, there may be sometimes like a, a, a misunderstanding. And so and, and I, this struck me as related to what was on Sadi Aleph in 91, where it said, I'm a Rabbi Yaakov, I'm a Rabbi Yochanan, Eino sin right? You can't have a group that's entirely converts. Shami Yidat Gubo, right? Because maybe they'll scrutinize, they'll, they'll check the korban too quickly, and they will make it, they'll, they'll find something about it that's pasul, that's not really pasul. And almost in a way that you need somebody who's done the korban Pesach for many, many years, you know, you want them there so that they would sort of be like, yeah, it's going to be okay. You know, and I think about it like somebody who's, you know, let's say newly keeping kosher, let's say, for example, right? If something accidentally gets trafe in their kitchen and come to my kitchen because I joke around that my children, maybe I have particular members of my household, I'll keep them anonymous. Um, I outed <laughs> some of them um, who like continually trafe up my kitchen all the time. You know, like everyone's using like a milk knife or they should have used the flesh knife. I don't want to say all the time, but you guys understand what I'm saying, you know. So I think when you've kept kosher for a long time, you sort of understand, OK, if it was cold, if you washed it with, you know what I mean? There's all the loopholes there. But if you're new to it, there may be like a certain anxiety around it. Um, and so here it's interesting to see, you know, on Saudi Aleph, there was a concern that they might be too strict. And on Saudi Bed, according to Beit Hill, at least, there was a concern that like there just might be a misinterpretation 
that would almost lead it to be more mekel, right? You would end up eating the Korban Pesach when you really shouldn't have eaten the Korban Pesach. So again, I, what it's coming together to me more and more is the social cohesiveness of the Korban Pesach. Everybody's supposed to have access to it, but sort of really in a very careful way going through what are all the issues each of these groups are going to have? And how do we think that through from a halachic point of view to give access to the Korban Pesach, but also maintain integrity of the halacha around the Korban Pesach? I think that is well said. I, I, I think it's true. Like if we if we went back and outlined everything that we've seen so far, um, which I am not going to do this day, but maybe, right? It's the kind of thing that ought to be done to say, at this point, we're talking about women. At this point, we're talking about non-Jews. At this point, we're talking about people who are tummy for this reason, or that reason, the other reason. Um, and so here we have this, this shift of focus. And again, I say that, you know, it allows Chazal to talk about other topics at the same time that they're talking about the Korban Pesach, meaning everything that you've said about the cohesiveness of society and community in the context of the Korban Pesach, I think is exactly on target. And I think that there's also kind of the opportunity for these, I'll call them pop-up windows or sidebars, right? Where where if you don't know what Chazal are talking about, you have to kind of go find out all of this business about what does it mean to be a gear and have these requirements? What does it mean to be in Aninut and have these requirements? You wouldn't know if it weren't mentioned specifically in the context of the Korban Pesach, but now you have to go really understand all the, like the extra that is being part and parcel of the conversation. Exactly. And then the Gemara basically finishes up the chapter by going through six scenarios, three of which where the rabbis sort of forsake their own decrees because there was an issue of kares and, uh, sorry, three examples. And then three examples where the rabbis basically said, you're not going to do a different I say because we wanted to keep the decree. So I'm not going to read through all that, but the concept of that is interesting. Like watching and seeing how the rabbis themselves sort of express the limitations or expansions of what Chazal enacted is also very interesting to me, but could be a whole sheer in itself. And just for the sake of time, we're going to hop over to um, the next, uh, the next pair, right? Ready, Anne? Next pair? Yeah. Okay. So now we're in pair Tishi. We're, we're getting there. I, I guess it's going to be time. Stay tuned next week. We'll be announcing uh, Zoom Zoom information, I'm realizing. Okay. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. Okay. Well, also, what the oh, my goodness is because that mean, we knew that Pesachim was ending right at Pesach, which means... You're not allowed to say Pesach it. Pesach is coming. You're not allowed to say it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't gotten to Purim. First Purim. Okay. First Purim. Anyhow, so let's go on here. Okay, so now this parak is really going to deal with all the halachot dealing with Pesach Sheni. And it begins as follows. Somebody who was Tame who was traveling very far away on the 14th of Nisan, right? Below Asa and didn't do the first Korban Pesach. They get to do the second one, right? Shagag Unanas. Let's say he made a mistake or... Something prevented it. There were some unusual set of circumstances, you know, beyond that person's control, and they could not participate in the first Korban Pesach Nisan. Below us, Tarishon didn't do the first. Yaset they have to bring the second. So now it's interesting. This is a Gemara question, but it's in the Mishnah, right? So if so, why does the Torah specifically say, right, Tame or somebody on a distant road? Because see, the Mishnah has already expanded it to say Shagago Nanas, right? Shafilu Pitarim Mehakare. Because those two, right? So this is a little vague what it's talking about, and the Gemara will explain this more, right? Those 
are patur from kare, the elu chayavim behakare, right? Whereas the other ones are chayav and kare. Now I would assume from the shot reading that it's that the tame and the rechoka ones, they're patur from kare. Like in other words, if they didn't get around to the second korban Pesach, they're patur from kare. But there may be a different different implication of punishment if you were if you erred or you you know uh, or you somehow some circumstance prevented you. But we're going to get to that in the Gemara later, so I'm not going to dwell on that now. Um, and I will hand it over to you for the Gemara. Okay, so the Gemara here it's going to really it's the beginning of a conversation that's going to continue on to the next uh, of please God we'll get there tomorrow and thereafter. But basically, it's addressing this Pesach Sheni question. And we've got a machloka between Rav Nachman and Rav Shesha. Rav Nachman Amar Hortza, Rav Shesha Amar Lo Hortza. What are we talking about? In this case of somebody who's gone on a distant journey, right? And then people did the shechita of the Korban Pesach and the sprinkling of that blood. They did it on his behalf so that when he gets home, he's back in time to eat the Korban Pesach. But he was far away at the time of the shechita, right? So does he have to... Does he have to do Pesach Sheni also or not? And Rav, or, or at all, right? Rav Nachman says, no, he was part of that korban. He doesn't have Pesach Sheni. And Rav Sheshit says, uh-uh, his korban was not accepted and he must do a korban, uh, you know, a korban Pesach on Pesach Sheni. So then the Gemara is going to really develop these opinions and it really carries on, as I said, for quite some time. Um, right, Rav Nachman says, and I really like this, Rav Nachman, I mean, it's not for me to like, right? But Rav Nachman, the Gemara explains Rav Nachman's opinion. Amar Hortza, mechas hu dechas rachmana alav, ve'i'avi tavo alav bracha. The Rav Nachman says it, why is his korban accepted? Because the Torah has mercy, is, has rachmim on somebody who is on this distant journey, and therefore, you know, to give him the option of the second Pesach is possible, but if he already then came and pe- participated, you know, he comes home and right away goes to sell, participate in the Korban Pesach, then Tavola Bracha, that he should have the blessing of, of having done that, and he doesn't have to go further and, you know, do it again. Rav Sheshit says, well, no, no, why not? Because his this Korban is not accepted, meaning his participation is not accepted, because the Torah specifically deferred his obligation to Pesach Sheni to begin with. So the fact that he might have like opted in, it's not good enough because the idea is that it's as if, as if he was Tameh. Um, I don't think it's saying that he was necessarily Tameh, right? Because presumably one is Tameh would not, would not jump into the Korban Pesach at all. But the idea is that just as one who is Tameh cannot participate in the Korban Pesach. Yeah. So according to Rav Sheshet, you are away on a distant journey traveling. You're not part of that Korban Pesach either. So, and then the Gemara goes on to explain, you know, each of them basically defends their position. And with this, we'll close, but the, the discussion does not. Amrav Nachman, mana minala, where do I get my, where do I get what I have to say? It's none, and he's got a support from a Mishnah, right? Misha yata me obader chuka, velo asa tarishon yaset hasheni, michal de'ibai avad. The very fact that there's a Mishnah that says, one who is away and didn't do Pesach Rishon. Therefore, that person could do Pesach Sheni. So the implication is by the fact that he didn't do it, as opposed to saying, and therefore he couldn't do it. He didn't do it, which means that if he wanted to do it, if he could have done it, if he did do it, he would not need Pesach Sheni. So that's Rav Nachman's inference. 
And Rav Sheshit has an answer, of course. Amarach, Yahachi, Seifet, Zikatani, Shagag, Onanas, Veloasa, Etarishon, Yaset, Asheni. Well, one second, we've got a whole claim here that if you were Shogig, if you were unwittingly forgetting or prevented, whatever, you're, you're an Ones, you, you somehow can't do the the Rishon, you'll do the Sheni, you'll do Pesach Sheni, Mitzikatani, Veloasa, Miklaldi, by Avid, Hare Shagag, Hare Nanas. He says the very fact that it says, uh, didn't do the implication is that he would have done it uh, that he you know that he would have done it if he could have done it so he must have not been able to do it what I find particularly interesting of course here is that we've got a perfect lineup of Rav Nachman and Rav Sheshet using the exact same language to defend each of their you know actual disputant positions because you know he didn't do it means and therefore if he did do it, that's fine. Or he didn't do it means he couldn't do it, so he can't. Um, and, you know, at least at this point, in, in our juncture on the daf, we can say, you know, pick your poison. Um, the daf continues. There's a Ravashi's comment here. I encourage you to read through it. In the interest of time, we're going to close here, however, because we know that there is much more coming um, about this. Yes, so we will continue on this tomorrow. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.